so renewable electricity, hydrogen, carbon, as well as battery electric and, and hydrogen um, technology production. The aviation transition out to 2050 will cost, we think, about an average of $175 billion annually from this year forward. So you, you have to imagine it is uh, a massive scale that, uh, that requires a lot of capital. Welcome to Sustainability in the Air, the world's first podcast dedicated to sustainable aviation. I'm your host, Shashank Nigam, the CEO of Simply Flying. Every Thursday, I have important conversations with top aviation executives, technology entrepreneurs, and policymakers helping aviation take climate action. Conversations that help separate the signal from the noise. Whether you are a frequent flyer or an airline executive, if you care about sustainability or simply love traveling, welcome aboard. My guest today is Andrew Chen. Andrew is the principal for aviation decarbonization at Rocky Mountain Institute, RMI. He has been working in the field of sustainability and decarbonization for 15 years, including roles at London Heathrow Airport. Now he's helping RMI develop universal sustainable aviation fuel certificates, book and claim solutions, and others to help the industry move forward. In fact, one of his key initiatives is also working on contrail mitigation and looking at non-CO2 impacts of aviation. Let's hear it from Andrew Chen. Andrew, fantastic to have you join us. Your work as a principal for aviation decarbonization at Rocky Mountain Institute is quite interesting. Can you Tell us a bit more about what is it that the RMI does and its role and influence on the aviation sector in particular. Great. And thanks so much for having me here today. Really excited to, to chat about aviation. Um, the, the work that we do at RMI, founded as the Rocky Mountain Institute in Aviation, is focused on accelerating the arrival of net zero aviation. And so for us, we, we take a, a pretty large view of what can be helpful and what we can do to help leverage that that acceleration and in broad broad terms that relates to SAF in multiple ways um, but there are also some other areas where we see a pretty important role we can play in convening stakeholders to address non-CO2 issues of aviation or the contrail impacts of aviation so on the, on the SAF side of things um, historically we've worked mostly on the demand side of this equation or of this issue trying to generate and leverage corporate demand and voluntary willingness to pay to help address the premium that still exists for SAF or sustainable aviation fuels today. Um, and to do that, we've, 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 uh, we've created a number of platforms and resources to help allow this type of approach. The most important one to mention is the Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance, or SABA, um, where we work with leading corporate uh, organizations who have a large travel footprint, don't have a business model that allows them to not fly, and therefore need to find solutions that they can credibly pay in and support the transition of fuels in the aviation space. Um, and, and we do that not only through the aggregation of their demand, their voluntary demand for 
for these uh, these SAF certificates, but also creating an ecosystem and a framework to allow for them to purchase a SAF certificate, use that to claim it towards their voluntary disclosures, toward their, their climate targets, but also all the associated resources and tools. So we've, we, are, uh, we, are, we will be soft launching um, and, and soon to fully public launch a SAF certificate registry based on blockchain architecture um, to allow for transparent, rigorous traceability of those claims and of the fuel associated with those claims. Um, but we've also worked with, with quite a number of stakeholders to develop things like greenhouse gas accounting and reporting guidance for the use or investment in SAF certificates, sustainability frameworks for corporate customers to understand what does good look like in terms of SAF, in terms of their particular um, priorities for sustainability um but but um but more generally speaking we help in these larger platforms to build awareness comfort and a more ambitious approach toward investing in the solution here which is SAF. Um, in the last year in 2023 uh, we also moved on to the supply side of this equation as well so i our team works directly with SAF developers mostly in north america for the time being um, but we, we, we have conversations and, and interests in a number of regions globally. Specifically, we look at projects that are under consideration and, and help producers and developers accelerate their decision making. So there's a lot of questions out there if you're a developer trying to make SAF. One of them is, what's my feedstock going to be? What, what location am I going to be at? What underlying sources of energy, green or otherwise, can I get access to? What's the transportation and infrastructure near me and near the facilities I'm looking at? So we run techno-economic analyses for producers to help them narrow down on some of these decisions, obviously focusing in on the carbon benefits and savings and the sustainability of, the, of those different um, technology and feedstock combinations that they could potentially use. And our hope in general is to try and accelerate projects toward final investment decision so that we can actually see this pipeline of projects go from announced to being financed and actually put in ground. And that's a, an exciting area. Um, and the third area I mentioned on Contrails uh, is a very exciting one for me personally and for RMI. We formed the Contrail Impact Task Force in 2022 um, as a convening of stakeholders across the entire value chain of aviation, as well as uh, research and academic technology, uh, and regulators as well to try and not only understand what the issues look like, what the solutions look like today, but to move ourselves toward a more consensus view of which which types of solutions are most likely to scale up, what the implications would, of that would be, um, and also trying to highlight what the priority gaps are in terms of research, um, climate observations, weather and humidity data. Th these are all really important factors in understanding if a contrail could be formed, if a contrail that could be formed would be a warming contrail, or um, more importantly, if we were able to avoid making that contrail, what the benefits could look like. So th um, three very exciting areas for us. Um, and more broadly, my team at RMI works on all of the hard to abate or heavy industry and transport sectors. So we have um, teams working in shipping, in steel, concrete and cement, um, waste methane, but we also have a, a significant practice in hydrogen specifically. So a really important cross-cutting commodity and, and resource for a number of sectors to decarbonize. Well, thank you so much for that 
fantastic executive summary of, uh, I think, every single thing we're going to deep dive into during uh, this interview. Let me start with the why first. My first introduction to the RMI was on a hike through the forest. I used to live in Whistler, BC with one of my neighbors, and he was one of the people who crafted uh, British Columbia's carbon tax back in the day when it was being done a few years ago. And he said, Shashang, you must read, if you're curious about sustainability, you must read this report by RMI and Rocky Mountain Institute. And I thought that's an apparel brand, but it's not an apparel brand. Um, in in Canada, Rocky Mountain sells candied apples. Uh, but why is this sector so important to RMI? Is RMI a nonprofit? That's what I understand. Why is aviation so critical in your mission? Yeah, yeah RMI was founded as uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute about 40 years ago now. Um, and our entire purpose and vision is to deliver a clean and prosperous energy transition for all. So we, we really focus in on, on things that we know are the, the, the big picture items toward that clean energy transition toward an equitable future as well. And so historically, we've worked in areas um, more the bread and butter of climate transition topics like green electricity, clean energy or green energy. Um, and and uh, I think grew quite a lot of success there. We've also been engaged directly with industrial sectors for a number of years. And so when we look at not just aviation, but um, in combination, the other heavy industry and transport sectors, we see roughly a third of, of total emissions today, which, which in theory, that share could grow even further as other sectors are able to decarbonize even faster. So generally speaking, when we think about heavy industry and transport, there are not many similarities across sectors, but the one that strikes out for most is we can't electrify our way out of the, the, the issue in many of these, these heavy sectors. Aviation being a great example, it, it's, it's two and a half, three percent of global emissions today. Um, if you add on top of that the non-CO2, that may be something like 5% of global climate impact today. Um, but even as solutions speed up in this space, other sectors, light, light-duty road transport, will electrify and clean up a lot faster. So as we forecast our way up to 2050, that small share of global emissions could, could be uh, significantly standing out compared to the rest of the economic sectors. And this is, this is similar for, for the other heavy industry and transport sectors we work within. So we know that for us, this is a really decisive decade for a number of topics. But for the heavy transport and industry sectors, we have so much work to do after this. But we have so much work to do in this decade to help set ourselves up for success, to build and start the markets that need to be mature so that we can't have this chance of, of getting to a net zero future in, in 2050. Um, and I think, you know, for me personally, there is, there's always been a strong draw to, to the aviation sector and to the environment. That is my background. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, I've been working my way more towards measuring the problem, trying to understand what potential projects or proposals could look like in terms of air quality, emission, greenhouse gas changes, to actually helping make decisions at an, uh, an institutional basis. So uh, I formerly was, was the head of uh, emission strategy for Heathrow Airport, which was uh, an incredibly rewarding and, and fulfilling uh, part of my career 
to help step into that decision-making role to understand what could we do as an airport to help accelerate this issue, um, to help get more staff to the aircraft at, at, at Heathrow and other airports, but ultimately work with the entire industry to help make these changes more quickly than, than they could have been made. Uh, and I think my transition over to RMI was um, a very welcome one. I've, I've worked with the RMI folks and teams for many years over, the, um, over my career and always really respected the work that was done, the approach that was taken, that independent, non-biased position focused entirely on how do we accelerate this transition toward clean energy. And so it's been a really rewarding transition for me personally as well. This is uh, fantastic. You speak about transition. You previously were part of the sustainability team at London Heathrow, uh, possibly one of the busiest airports in the world. I definitely based on long haul transatlantic or just long haul flights. Um, how has that role served you in your current role at RMI? Uh, in, in, a, in a number of really important ways. I think if you are in a role at an airport or any part of the aviation value chain. Um, and your task is to show that the industry can grow sustainably and responsibly. You very quickly realize that the only way in which to do that is for the entire sector, the entire value chain to move in unison and to work in collaboration to do that. So um, as, uh, as an airport, uh, many airports, actually most airports in the world, don't buy fuel. They don't sell fuel. They don't have anything to do with the commercial transaction of the fuel used. They have an important role to play in terms of maintaining the infrastructure that distributes the fuel. Um, they, in many cases, they have a commercial role they can play. And you see this now at Heathrow with a SAF incentive in their landing charges, where they've adjusted the, the fees that aircraft use to, to fly and land at Heathrow based on whether or not they're hitting certain targets for SAC usage. So these are really important roles that airports can play, but ultimately there is a limited influence that an airport has. And so you quickly learn that in in order to see a more sustainable future, one with a lot more SAC than we have today, it requires that radical level of collaboration across the value chain. Um, and so I think that was a, an incredibly foundational experience and, and background for me to take into the role at RMI and, and, and any future work generally in aviation or, or any other heavy industry or transport sector. You know, that is amazing. I want to dig in a little into the SAF side of the work that you're doing. You mentioned there's a demand side and then there's a supply side. Let's look at the demand side first. There's definitely a green premium right now because mm-hmm. there isn't enough supply and even though airlines have doubled uh, their staff uses this year, it's still 0.2% of total uh, needs. So it's really a supplier's market. Whatever the supplier asks for, they potentially can get. How do you build demand? And I'd love if you can share a concrete example here of working with a large corporate, which wants to reduce the scope three emissions. Um, do you help them connect to the airline? Do you do the SAF purchase deal for them by introducing them to suppliers? How is this done and what role does RMI play? Sure. So RMI founded SABA or the Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance in 2021 in partnership with the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, and we we were founded with a very similar mission to the RMI aviation team to accelerate net zero aviation by catalyzing investment in high integrity sustainable aviation fuel. 
So what we what we generally are trying to do is to help address that green premium that still exists today. And, and quite honestly, one that will continue to exist for a number of years into the future. So we know that this isn't a solution that will magically not be needed at some point. We, we know that there will be some duration to this issue of a green premium and a need to tap into additional demand to help address that premium. So if you take a, a, a typical SAF purchase or, or um, SAF transaction, an airline today who face you know, a, a significant portion, 30, 33% of their total operating costs come from fuel alone. And you ask them to, to now deal with a premium that may be two to four times what their underlying commodity price is. It's an untenable solution. They, they just won't be financially able to cover that, that gap and deal with that premium. And so that's where the role of corporate demand comes in to help fill in that gap. Um, and, and that's so it's a really important aspect where if you have a company, so you know we, we have a number of large corporates at, at Saba, to, to name a few, a Microsoft, a Disney, a Deloitte, a McKinsey and Company, who fly people or things around the world quite a lot, they can't stop doing that. Their business is predicated on being able to send people or things using air travel. And so they have a large footprint, typically speaking, from their air travel. They've set science-based targets or other voluntary targets to reduce those emissions. And for them, there's no other way to do that than not fly. And as I've mentioned, that's not a solution that will work for them. They can't do business without this. So they need to find credible ways to invest in the aviation uh, transition, and in this case in SAF, and to be able to use those investments to claim them towards their voluntary disclosures. So um, Saba, after formation, in 2022, we ran our first pilot RFP. So what we do is we aggregate the demand of our corporate members and say, okay, we're going to look to purchase SAF certificates from the market. So from SAF producers or from airlines or combinations of both. And we're going to try and, and aggregate our demand to go out to market to, to see what prices we could negotiate for, what underlying SAF fuel types and feedstocks that would come from, would that meet our, our group's demands or not. What we don't do is sign contracts on behalf of our, of our members, but we do help to negotiate and run the, those RFP processes. So coming off the back of that, that first really spot market RFP that we did in 2022, um, we, we've now just, just about to conclude now toward the end of 2023, our first multi-year. So it's a five-year offtake RFP with about a dozen companies in, included. And so what we do is, again, we aggregate demand across our membership over that five-year period. We put an RFP out to the market, both to fuel producers as well as to airlines. Um, and and we, we hear back proposals and we negotiate and try to allocate and find the right combinations of, of fuels, carbon savings, sustainability um, uh, qualifications and certifications. And that way we can allow and get our customers in and, and have a longer term offtake for SAF certificates, which is a really important aspect today in, in the market where it's not easy to get financing for a SAF project. So if you're a producer or developer, um, oftentimes you, you, you are, you're trying to find more creative ways to show that you have strong demand or offtake 
for your production capacity um, and bringing in a, a, a corporate off-taker who won't ever use the fuel or touch the fuel themselves, but rather have a voluntary willingness to pay toward that premium so that they can disclose it and, and so that no one else could also disclose the, the, the same savings toward their targets, um, then we have an ability to start addressing that premium and get more SAF into the supply chains of, of airlines. So that's very, very interesting how you're preventing double counting of SAF or, or double dipping here. Yeah. What would make a Microsoft or a Salesforce come work with you rather than negotiating these deals directly with airlines, for example? Well, we, we certainly see a mix of everything, and we're really supportive of, of some of the announcements that um, we've recently seen. So Microsoft, DHL, to name a few, have some very ambitious, very long-term offtake agreements directly with um, pipeline SAP projects. So projects that are not yet built, projects that, that need to find that financing, need to find those offtake contracts so that they can get the financing to go forward. Um, and, and so that's a, a really welcome evolution of, of the market and of what, what is happening in this voluntary SAF space. Um, but the issue of double counting or double claiming is a very important one to, to try and address. Many times we, we don't, we, we often try to disassociate SAF and SAF certificates from offsetting, um, because it truly is an investment in the value chain of aviation. If you can credibly show that your SAF certificate came from real SAF, then you have a, a, a much higher degree of confidence that there was a reduction in carbon or, or life cycle CO2 from aviation. And so that's a bit different than an offset where you're going out of sector, paying for something which has, you know, dubious uh, or sometimes, you know, a, a, a little bit of a checkered past in terms of some potential potential issues that have come up about either schemes overestimating how much carbon or in some cases in the early days, double selling. So we, you know, there's a number of issues that have come from the early carbon markets that, that are being addressed today in today's offsetting markets. But also we knew that we had to address them within the SAS certificate market as well. So double counting or double claiming is a really important one. Um, what we mean by that is to ensure that if a batch of SAF was made, you have an airline that's going to be consuming that SAF, burning that SAF. They, they need to be able to accurately show, in this case, in their scope one or their scope three for that airline, that there were reductions and how much were they, what do they equate to. But there are also, as we do today, these corporate customers or travelers or users of air freight will, will show these emissions or their share of these emissions in scope three. So essentially what we have today is an accounting system where I don't want to call it double counting for, for I don't want to conf confuse the issue, but we, we have multiple layers of accounting of emissions from a positive standpoint today. What, we, what we've created and what we've done is to, to create a system where you can also show the savings in those same supply chains, in those same accounting ledgers across that supply chain. Um, so that, that's a really important aspect. But once you do that, you need to give others in this, this value chain some certainty that there isn't an ability for a batch of SAF to create a number of certificates and for them to then create another set of certificates 
that gets sold or to sell one certificate multiple times to different users. So that's where uh, uh, a transparent and rigorous registry becomes really important. It's something that you see in many other carbon markets today to ensure that there is accountability, that there is traceability, that there is not double counting or double claiming of these these certificates. Um, and, and I think, you know, broadly speaking, it is, it's to try and address issues of, of, you know, let's, I, I don't, I, I'm not accusing anyone of fraud in this case, but it's to address concerns that there could be some sort of fraud or some kind of shenanigans, let's call them uh, in these transactions. <laughs> so having these public registries and having strong certification standards and frameworks in place, like the uh, roundtable on sustainable biomaterials, um, it, it, it's a really helpful starting place that we've built off of to then create this ecosystem and provide that confidence that the, the SAF really did exist. It had certain qualities that were certified, certain life cycle savings that we can calculate and, and verify, and ultimately creates a number of certificates that can be traced back to source um, and, and can we can help ensure that they're not being misused. Right. I, I agree on the transparency bit. Um, there were reports recently in Bloomberg, for example, which talked about a lot of, especially U.S. airlines, signing a lot of offtakes uh, for the future, uh, mm-hmm. for, for future SAF demand. But yet the amount of SAF as a share of all jet fuel today is paltry in these same airlines. And the article con- concluded that U.S. airlines are lagging in SAF use. What do you say to that, where airlines, some airlines are buying a lot of SAF for future offtakes, not really sure whether that offtake will come to you know fruition or not. Uh, and yet there are other airlines which are trying to pump in a lot of SAF today who may or may not have future offtake contracts. Yeah, I think um, that, you know, one, one thing that the Bloomberg article, in my opinion, um, maybe didn't give enough credit to was the amount of of investment and capital raising that is necessary for SAF production. So, you know, let's let's just say that, you know, Airline X decided to 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 take whatever investment fund that they may have or whatever revenue that they they were planning to 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 um partner and and try and get some more SAF in the ground for the future and use that to buy SAF today. Well, one, it would be a pretty high price still today with with a, a as you said you know, a supplier dominated market, but really there's a scarcity, you know, there's not enough capacity or production today. So even if they wanted to, there's not enough SAF for them to buy today to, to get to a higher target. So they have to invest for multiple reasons in future capacity. And, um, and I think the other aspect here is, you know, we are looking at a massive hill that needs to be climbed to get toward the targets of, of, in the U.S., the, the SAF grand challenge that Biden set out is, is 3 billion gallons per year by 2030. To go from where we are today or from even five years ago, which was effectively zero SAF usage compared to conventional, you know, we're talking less than 0.1%, um, not, not too many years ago. It's going, it's going to look slow at first. And that, that, that hockey stick curve is, is, is going to be accelerating. We are on the early phases of it right now. Um, but I, but we see the market signals. We see the ambition from not just the the airlines and the fuel producers, but the third party corporates as well to help transition this market. And so I, I think that we need to keep in perspective how far we have come, 
not only in terms of the SAF capacity that exists in the U.S. or globally and how that's grown over the years, but really in terms of the outlook, the projections of how much SAF we think we'll have in 2030. If you look back a few years ago, they're much smaller. So the, I think the really encouraging um, sign for me is that every year when we do these outlooks and we look out to 2030 or 2040, the, the projected volumes or capacities of SAF has been growing quite steadily and quite impressively. So that I, I think is, is something that we, we can't, uh, we, we can't discredit too much here. Right. No, that's the, that's a good point around, um, how much funding is needed. Before I get into the supply side, I still have one more demand side question, which is something I often encounter when speaking with airlines, uh, in in my new book on sustainable aviation, we interviewed quite a, quite a few, and there was always de- this debate on who pays for decarbonizing the airline or or travel. Is it the airline's job? Well, customers or passengers certainly seem to think so. That you know, it's the airline's job. Is it the corporate's job? Let's say Microsoft or a Salesforce. Um, is it the passengers' job? So we see airlines like Lufthansa offering green fares and expecting voluntary uh, uptake of those green fares where passengers are paying double sometimes uh, of the cheapest fare to compensate for their carbon footprint. Whose job is it to decarbonize aviation? The airline, the corporate, the passenger, the government, someone else? Well, I I think every stakeholder has an important role to play. I think in this case, there's no silver bullet um, owner of, of the cost of the transition here. In terms of the economics of the aviation industry, it's it's pretty clear that the margins are slim that these airlines work on. So, um, you know, I, I, I can totally understand that the public won't sympathize with a, a large airline who, even with small margins, has massive amounts of revenue because of their amount of activity. Um, but it, it again, you can't discredit the, the small margins that the airline industry works within. So that what that means is, if they were to take on the additional cost today, they would not be financially solvent as a company. And we, we, we need air transport. So I think one of, the, one of the kind of foundational principles I get back to is that air travel is a net positive for society and the planet, not just for the economy, for research, for tech development, for cultural exchange, for educational purposes, for personal purposes to see family when you live abroad. So there is a net good that aviation provides. It comes with a, with, uh, you know, a, a very high visibility impact on the climate and one that we have to work to avoid. But I, I think we have to work from the standpoint of understanding that it provides a benefit that, that we need to protect. And to protect that benefit, we have to address the impacts of it. So in, in you know, in, in many ways, um, the costs that an airline bears today and in the future get passed on. Operational costs, investment costs, these things get passed on to their customers. So to passengers, either corporate passengers, general general public passengers. Um, so any increase they see in their operational costs are going to have to get passed on in a similar degree in order for those, those airlines to stay in business. Um, in this case, there I think there is an important role for the public to be playing here. And in many cases, it may be more one of awareness today in terms of how and and where they think about planning their travel. But as we know, a lot of times air travel is is non-negotiable. You you need to do it. Even if you roll back how much you do per year, 
you still have to fly occasionally, or if you're a company, you still have to fly quite a lot. So um, then the question becomes, well, where is the ability to actually pay that premium? And while individuals um, and, and more wealthy individuals may be able to, to partake in, in programs, um, I think the truth of the matter is that for a, a general flying member of the public, if they were to look at addressing the entire emissions of their one flight or their portion of one flight and do that through SAF certificates, that may not be a sustainable solution in terms of finances for them going forward. It may, it, it may seriously raise the price of a single ticket for them. In addition to that, those private individuals may not have a hook that's requiring them, either from a voluntary or otherwise standpoint, to reduce their emissions or to address their, their air travel emissions. That's where the corporate travelers become really important. So they have the balance sheets. They also have, in many cases, the ambitious, publicly stated voluntary targets to reduce their, their impact. And so that's where they become really important in helping to address um, the transition costs of SAF specifically. Um, and so that's why we've focused so much through Saba and through our other work um, to, to try and harness that demand from these, these ambitious corporates so that they can not only help the transition, but also help them find a solution for them addressing their own emissions. This is interesting. Let me just slide this in here. Um, what is the role of lessors in in this whole equation? Because lessors are often the ones who own the aircraft. Airlines are operating them. Yep. Do you think lessors have a role to play in purchase or creating demand towards? Yeah. Yeah, we certainly believe the financial community has an important role to play in 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 this sector and many other sectors. Um, RMI launched the climate aligned framework for aviation and that is intended not specifically for lessers but really for asset managers and portfolio managers who have investments in aviation assets so aircraft in this case um, we we think that the role that lessers or other uh, investors in this community have to play is more in line with the technology and the underlying efficiency of the aircraft in a fleet or in a portfolio but there is an important aspect of how that aircraft is operated, i.e., is the how much SAF is that airline using? What are the actual um, um, performance metrics related to to flying the aircraft, which are important factors as well? But I think fundamentally, if you're an asset manager, a lesser or, or other in, in this space, you need to know, is my portfolio on track for what is required of, of a net zero future? And so that's what the climate aligned framework for aviation helps to, to paint um, using uh, using well-established roadmaps and, and forecasts for what aviation needs to do to help get to net zero. And then looking at the efficiency components of that on a um, per activity basis to help these financial institutions understand if their existing asset portfolio or their future one is on track for net zero. But it also gives them, as you know, in many cases, more visibility. A lot of times what we say in this climate space is the first step is measuring. Once you start measuring, yes, you need to take these other steps, more sophisticated looks at how and where you could reduce your impacts and make steps to, to set a strategy for a, for a, you know, a, a much more um, uh, climate aligned future. But 
just measuring and understanding my current fleet, my current portfolio, my current set of assets looks like this helps to raise so much more awareness, helps to generate so much more conversation between those investors, airlines, OEMs, and the like to help drive some more activity. Let's focus on the supply side now. You, we, we talked a lot about the demand side. I was recently reading a Sky Energy report, uh, an outlook that they released, which talked about, I believe it was $200 billion in funding for staff projects now till 2050, only in Europe, and $400 billion in the U.S., uh, and they, I think, pinned the cost of an, one new SAF plant to anywhere from $1.5 to $2 billion. Um, you're working with suppliers. This is a lot of money. I mean, this is very different from Silicon Valley startups where, you know, $100 million and you're, you know, you're that Series E or something like that. Um, here, this is, this is spare change, uh, a billion, two billion. How can suppliers get there and where do you see the most uh, what gives you the most um, hope in in bridging this gap? Well, yeah, I, so I, I think, you know, again, to reiterate, every type of financial institution has an important role to play in this sector and many other sectors in their transition. But the scale of the, of the capital challenge does not lend itself necessarily to a VC or a private equity fund in, in most cases. However, there is there are really valid places for for those types of institutions to play. Specifically, you know, there's still a number of technologies under development to convert feedstocks into SAF or related to alternative or novel forms of propulsion like hydrogen or electric aircraft as well. So there's still an important role to play of, of those types of investors to get the R&D, to get the commercial readiness up to a better place. But when you get to a commercial sized facility for SAF, you need a lot of capital. And, and, and so I think that's where um, infrastructure capital groups become a lot more important who deal on scales similar to this, who are used to projects in this 500 to 1.5 billion, um, capital range because they're, they're obviously going to be set up for, for the types of risks and, and the just scale of the, the, the problem associated with it. Um, I think on average, um, a stat that's a helpful one to just think about the scale of the problem in terms of investment. And this is when you think about not just SAF facilities, but also the underlying renewable energy sources for, for future SAF, so renewable electricity, hydrogen, carbon, as well as battery electric and, and hydrogen um, technology production. The aviation transition out to 2050 will cost, we think about an average of $175 billion annually from this year forward. So you, you have to imagine it is uh, a massive scale that, uh, that requires a lot of capital. And to get to your, your question on, you know, really what, what do I see that's encouraging? Well, the market, the market signals are pretty clear. We see quite a lot more activity. We see a lot more interest. We see a lot more beginnings of investments and headlines of investments and, and announcements of teaming agreements, of partnerships, of joint ventures, of these long-term offtake agreements, so much of that is spurred by the IRA in the U.S. and the incentives that we see in the U.S. Um, so I think, you know, that's been an incredible boon to the transition here and for, for generally for the clean energy transition in the U.S. Um, would we like to see more? Yes. Would we like to see it extended further out into the future? Absolutely. And those are things that we're working on and, and many others in the value chain are working on today. But, um, you know, really, 
you you have to take a lot of comfort or at least a lot of encouragement in these early signs and these early projects and announcements that yes it's daunting the size of the challenge is daunting in front of us but people are making steps are moving forward people and players in the market are seeing this as an opportunity area and so you know if if i were to to you know qualitatively set out some metrics the number of of emails that we receive the number of conversations that are we're asked to join has just been growing exponentially so it's very clear to us that the activity and the interest in aviation and in staff production is rapidly growing and so i think that's the most encouraging sign that, that we take generally uh, i'm encouraged to see your email volume growing <laughs> that is definitely a good stat to follow you are, you mentioned another statistic which is 175 billion dollars per year from now till 2050 annually what is the split for this of this 175 billion where is this funding meant to go it is mostly in the actual production capacity or the upstream renewable capacity to make sat So yes some of it will will need to go towards battery electric production um but generally speaking it is the actual final refinement capacity for producing SAF as well as the underlying renewable electricity renewable energy hydrogen production and or CO2 um capture and and transportation infrastructure so it's it's we're we're talking steel and concrete in the ground is is the majority of where that needs to go Well, wow. so this is only for SAF and not necessarily taking into account the startups like Zero Avi or Universal Hydrogen looking at hydrogen or Hart Aerospace looking yeah, at electric. It, you know, in, in theory it does to a certain extent um include those, but it um I think it's it's clear that the majority of the capital costs required for the transition are for either primary uh liquid fuel production, SAF production or for uh the the underlying or upstream renewable feedstocks that will help to create that SAF in the future. Fair enough. What's your stance on LCAFs or low carbon aviation fuel? Is that a fair alternative or a stopgap measure? Um I think it presents opportunities and challenges. Generally speaking, you know, without commenting directly on it, we see a much more important investment of our effort and time on higher life cycle saving fuels so saf that meets a much higher life cycle saving threshold than um lcaf which i believe is 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 defined at 10% savings or better over the life cycle of the fuel so uh, you know the way that i look at this for any of these non fossil aviation fuels to work in the ecosystem you need the virtual infrastructure that goes with them to ensure the same issues around the underlying actual carbon intensity of the fuel of the facility that's making it of who's claiming their reductions from the use of that fuel so if you're going to invest your time to do that and to create a system where you have voluntary willingness to pay from third parties then we focus much more on the saf um definition of uh, you know generally speaking depending on where you look that's at least a 50% savings that's how the the inflation reduction act defines saf in the US um as saba we use a threshold of a 60% life cycle savings to provide a little bit more certainty and some buffer 
on top of that. But um, generally speaking, we, we think that there is, you know, an incredible opportunity to to start actually seeing SaaS that is even higher than that. And that's what's exciting about the future is today we have SaaS that, broadly speaking, come from biofuels. It's a, it's a type of biofuel for the most part. Um, and, you know, whether that be used cooking oil or tallow or, or other sources of feedstock, you know, you can see an, an important and significant savings in, in that fuel type over the life cycle. So 75%, upwards of 80% even are possible with these biofeedstocks. But when we get into the future fuels, the powered liquid fuels made from renewable electricity, uh, captured carbon, hydrogen, uh, green hydrogen as well, you, in theory, you can get upwards of a 99% life cycle savings, depending on how you manage the process and the underlying energy at the facilities and things. So that's a really exciting uh, improvement. Um, but but um, yeah, generally speaking, we, we focus our time and investment of effort on the higher life cycle saving fuels, and, and we define them as, as 60% life cycle savings as SABA. Glad to know. Um, and I think that's a good focus uh, just in terms of your team's effort as well. Um, now, let's move on from staff. When we met in Houston, we, of course, were talking about non-CO2 impacts of aviation. Uh, there is a lot of debate around contrails and whether removing contrails uh, increases fuel burn and hence you know, increases the CO2 emissions. And sometimes there are also questions about whether the contrail is cooling or is it warming mm-hmm. and you know it's the the cooling contrails perhaps can be just left as it is untouched it's the detection of the warming contrails amidst so much confusion why do you think airlines should still act today well i i think that it's a multifold answer there um and to complicate the, the topic a little bit further, a single flight can have portions, if it makes a contrail, portions of that contrail could be cooling and portions of that contrail could be warming. Overall, our, you know, from our, our, the research and understanding, globally, contrails on an annual basis have an overwhelmingly net warming impact. So even though there are portions of contrails or entire contrails that would have a net cooling effect, the overall impact when you add everything together is, is overwhelmingly a warming impact. Now, I think the opportunity is, is really exciting for airlines because it turns out that despite the fact everything we just talked about, the scale of capital necessary to get the SAF investment in the ground, um, the challenges of, of, of advancing technologies like battery electric and hydrogen to commercial readiness are staggering. Um, however, Every indication we've seen so far, the, the potential cost of, uh, let's say, operationalizing contrail avoidance or mitigation appear incredibly cost efficient compared to the other things we need to do in aviation. The challenge that provides is then we need to describe this and, and package this message, not as one of saying, great, we found a cheaper way for you to reduce your aviation impacts. Because that would divert the attention, the investment, the, 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 um, the focus on, on decarbonizing and getting more SAF built. So the, the message is really, in addition to the things that aviation is already doing and needs to continue doing to get carbon out of flying, to address the non-CO2 impacts, 
it actually seems to be relatively, and I say that with big air quotation marks, relatively easy and relatively affordable in this 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 sector to address the the contrail impacts of warming. And and to put it in in context, if if aviation is about a gigaton of emissions today, or two point five percent of total global emissions today. When you add the non-CO2 warming impact of aviation, noting there are still significant uncertainties that, that exist within these, these, these calculations and these, these assessments, but even using a conservative basis, if you were to add the non-CO2 effect on top, there would be an, an equivalent of an additional 61% of the existing emissions that we see from, from aviation today. So... It is no small issue. It may be the single largest climate impact overall from aviation when you look at all, all sources combined. Um, but the fact that it is relatively, we, be- we believe and, and continue to see and build confidence in the solutions, relatively easy to, to integrate prediction and avoidance into flight operations. But also the fact that the majority of contrail impacts come from a very small number of flights overall. So 80% of the contrail impacts of flying come from less than 5% of flights. And that may be an even lower number um, when you when you dig into the research, but let's say conservatively less than 5% of flights. That means that our solution can be incredibly targeted on those flights where we know they could have a large warming contrail potential. So a follow-up question on that. If a large majority of this warming impact is on a very small portion of flights, and I think a lot of them are over the North Atlantic or cross Atlantic, why can't we just have a blanket uh, for all North Atlantic flights? You know, just like they have a turbulence avoidance system in the cockpit. Here's uh, another check mark in your flight planning at a contrail avoidance system. How easy or difficult is it to do that? Well, uh, I think you've just described in in very short terms a system which we see having some some legs and scaling up, which is to use the existing flight planning process of something like turbulence or poor weather and, and build that into the flight planning system for contras as well. And that's essentially what we see with a number of the real-world trials that have been conducted to date and are being planned for the future. If you can predict regions of airspace where it is most likely that a, co- a warming contrail would be made, you can ingest that information into the flight planning system and exactly what you described, create another layer of, of consideration in your flight route planning. Um, the, the, the nuances come because if, the, if you are to massively change your flight plan to avoid a contrail region, you could burn additional CO2. So you need to have confidence that your flight changes or your flight optimization wouldn't result in significant amounts of additional CO2 burn. And that's really important today when we still are addressing some of the uncertainties in trying to measure the contrail impacts for total aviation globally, but even more on individual specific flights. Um, so w- once you start to, to deal with at flight level, you have you have uncertainties that still exist. So to help address those uncertainties, you want to set some limits. And we've seen this with a number of trials today where airlines will will set a threshold to say, okay, if this flight could create a warming contrail, 
I want to make sure that I could avoid that by changing my flight elevation. Generally, it's, it's usually a flight elevation change um, that, that can help avoid those regions. And I want to do that without too much of a fuel penalty. So they, you know, they may be willing to accept a small fuel penalty within kind of the, the operational consideration thresholds of, of additional fuel they have on board or otherwise. But they, they want to do that because they know that they're creating a net benefit by not creating a contrail. But due to the uncertainties of A, the contrail impact prediction, B, the verification of was there a contrail made or not made. So these, these other uncertainties that we're addressing today, they set some limits. I could see a future in which if we're able to reduce those uncertainties, provide a lot more of a, of a strong you know, uh, certainty to an airline that this individual flight, if you were to avoid this contrail, would result in a net benefit, even if you burnt additional fuel. Um, then, then we can see some, I, I think, some some more ambitious decision-making being made. But I don't think it's necessary at this time. We're still in the phase of developing these solutions in parallel. So the control predictive models have come a long way in the last couple of years. They will continue advancing. And specifically, we're now at a phase where we need to start calibrating and validating these models. So understanding when we predicted a flight would make a contrail, did it. When we predicted a flight change would not make a contrail, did it. So th those are really important aspects. Um, but we still have, there's a number of gaps in the systems. Um, the most important one to point out is globally and academically, we don't have a lot of information on humidity at higher altitudes. And contrails typically form between 32,000 to 42,000 feet of altitude above ground level. Um, this is where the air can is typically cold enough, and if it's humid enough, then combustion at that altitude will result in, in ice particles forming into serious clouds, which which are your contrails. So, um, if if we have better information on humidity at those levels of altitude, it improves the predictive abilities of our contrail and weather models to to come up with. Um, these contrail prone zones we call them ice supersaturation regions that's the, the technical term of where a contrail could be made well i definitely learned something new today which is ice supersaturation regions um in my last 15 years in aviation every time i've met with a cfo his sole his, an airline CFO specifically, his sole aim is to reduce cost or drive revenue. And because revenue is so hard to drive in airlines, it's primarily focused on reducing costs. Usually, um, you know, driving engine efficiencies by 1%, 2% over a few years. Now, if you're saying contrail avoidance may result in an increase in fuel burn of anywhere from 1% to 2%, aren't we nullifying what's the case we can make to the CFO yeah. for contrail avoidance today? Well, I think we need to keep in perspective that that may be on an individual flight, but when you average that out across an entire airline's annual operations, we are talking about very small percentages of potential additional fuel burn at an incredible benefit in terms of total climate net positive. So, um, well, yes, they're, 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 they, on an individual flight, you, you could see deviations that would result in a one or two percent fuel additional fuel burn penalty averaged out across the entire fleet those are incredibly small and much smaller than the, the bread and butter of the aviation industry which is efficiency you know a year-on-year -year improvements in efficiency are are the, the hallmark of, of this industry so 
I think when when put in combination with um, not only the the gradual increases or the business as usual, sometimes we call them efficiency increases, the future planned aircraft, which with much more radical innovation uh, and efficiency designs, um, the the advancements we see in SAF and the SAF market, in and then and you combine that with with um, control mitigation. Uh, we see a, a very positive transition path for the aviation industry. I'm, I'm glad to hear that, uh, that overall it's not as much. Um, just closing out this Contrail discussion, we see there are large nonprofits like the MIT, the work that MIT is doing, or even what Breakthrough Energy is doing. And then there are for-profit companies like Satavia. Um, who do you think is going to win out? Is Contrail avoidance going to be something that's being led by nonprofits, or do you think there's a space for a for-profit company here? Uh, I think today there's a space for everyone, and and we founded the Contrail Impact Task Force with that broad umbrella principle of bring in, bringing in and collaborating with stakeholders across the entire value chain, um, because we we don't see this as the time to to pick winners or to decide who who's going to ultimately win out in in these ideas but rather recognizing that there's such a rich debate and active research in the academic community. There's so much happening on the, the, the tech developer side of things with, with Google using machine learning to look at satellite imagery, um, with groups like Flight Keys integrating control uh, predictions into their flight planning software already, groups like Satavia working with airlines to actually use some of these, these procedures on a real-world basis, Breakthrough, who've developed um, a, a control predictive model that's being used by many of these real-world trials. So right now, we see this space as an important one to collaborate and convene across. And ultimately, what will the solutions look like and how they could potentially scale up will dictate what the best route is. So, you know, is we're still very open-ended today. We're not entirely certain as to the correct mix of incentives or regulation, carrots and sticks that could be used and which ones have the most merit to help implement contrail avoidance at, at a large scale. So, you know, I, I am totally speculating here, but on a on the heavy regulation standpoint, it is just something that is required of all flights everywhere all the time. If you're going to make a contrail, you have to have a prediction model, you have to integrate, you have to avoid full stop. That's it. That's all you do. And and, there, and on the, the completely other side of the spectrum, what if it's purely a, a challenge innovation fund? It could be a philanthropic fund. You know, some, some, someone puts up a significant amount of money every year and says, prove to me that you avoided making contrails. And, and here's, here's some funding to help offset your operational costs. The reality is, in our, you know, the world that we live in, it'll probably be a mix of both of those things. But what we need to do is to understand which ones, which solutions have the most merit, what implications they would look like as they scale up. And that's something that we're actively working on. So in uh, we, we hope in the beginning of Q2 in 2024, we will be launching a contrail implementation roadmap, which really solidifies the thinking and discussions we've been having with our participants and with our members over the last year and a half now. Um, and to help set out the latest understanding of what contrail observation science and contrail impact science looks like today, what the mitigation solutions could look like, and ultimately what the implications of each one of those could look like if they're scaled up into the future. So really importantly, to, we need to think about airspace 
And, and if more and more flights were trying to optimize for control avoidance or for control mitigation, what could those potential pinch points look like in airspace management? How can we integrate these principles into the, the several conversations happening globally about airspace modernization um, and airspace uh, reform? Fair enough. I think there is indeed um, room for everyone. Now, for the final bit, Andrew, we have what's called the rapid fire round. Sure. In which I'm going to ask you some very simple questions about yourself. And hopefully we'll have some fun along the way getting to learn about yourself. So I'll start with a simple one. What's your favorite airline? Oh, oh, the, <laughs> the, 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 one that, the one that gets me to my destination with the best itinerary and lowest emissions. <laughs> lowest emissions. I like that. So those are, I guess, non, uh, non-stop flights then, huh? <laughs> Typically, I, I think like a lot of travelers, I, I look for a, a non-stop flight for comfort but also knowing that it tends to be a more efficient route as well. Right. Okay. What's your favorite city? Oh, great question. Uh, I'm from Santa Barbara, California, so I, I have to say that. But if I were to pick on another continent, I love Copenhagen. Copenhagen uh-huh. is my favorite city. Okay, fantastic. What about your favorite movie? Oh, great question. I uh, I am a child of the 80s, so I will I will list the original Star Wars trilogy as my, my favorite movie. I was just hoping you don't list the original Top Gun <laughs> because there have been lots of Top Gun fans on this podcast <laughs> from the 80s. Um, what's your favorite book, Andrew? Uh, the World According to Garth. Is okay. A fantastic read. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, what is something you want to learn? I, I am I'm not, a bad, I'm not a bad cook in the kitchen, but I do not bake. I am not a baker, and and uh, I somehow avoided the the trend through the pandemic of learning to bake bread. But I now think that that maybe learning how to bake bread would be pretty fun. Time to get your hands on some good yeast. Yeah, <laughs> I love to cook. I do not bake because I think baking is a science and cooking is an art. <laughs> and I think that, <laughs> that's the difference. Um, what do you do in your free time? Uh, I spend a lot of time with my child. Uh, we I have an eight year old daughter going to school here in Brooklyn. Uh, then I like to be active, so I, I do a number of sports. I ride bikes, um, and I I participate in weightlifting, the sport of weightlifting. So the sport the of weightlifting, not okay. in, yeah, not 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 just lifting of weights, but um, the sport they call it Olympic weightlifting. But however, wow. I will never be in the Olympics, nor have I ever been in the Olympics for for a sport like that. Never say never. So you know <laughs> you don't know what's coming next. Uh, what's the best advice you have received? That is a great question. The best advice I ever received. You've really, you really got me here. <laughs> you know, I think um, in, in relation to traveling, I had a friend's mom once in, in Peru um, basically give me the advice that there are three P's in Spanish, but they are your checklist for, for any trip. So they're, they're, Pasaje, pasaporte, plata, which means your ticket, your passport, and money. So, the great advice for any young traveler: make sure you have those three items, and you'll you'll never you'll never go amiss. You'll always be all right. Good, good one. Um, if you are on a long haul flight out of New York, I would say eighteen hours. Let's say you're on the Singapore Airlines flight nonstop uh, out of uh, New York. For those eighteen hours, who would you love? To have as your seatmate. This can be someone living or dead. Oh, I'd, I'd have to pick my family. We love to travel together. So <laughs> right. my wife and daughter. 
<laughs> Fantastic. And finally, if we are speaking one year from now and we are popping champagne, what are we celebrating? Hopefully a number of new SAF announcements, a number of new offtake agreements, um, a, a historic joint RFP for, for multiple years of offtake from Saba, but also we're, we're no longer just talking about pilot uh, trials of control avoidance. We're talking about uh, systemic inclusion in, in airline operations, or, or at least, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a bigger step closer to that. Fantastic. Well, Andrew, I think we'll have to do a part two of this interview in a few months because in our one hour together today, we've only managed to touch on SAF and Contrails. There's a lot more to talk about. And I really appreciate your time and your insights. I really enjoyed this conversation. This was fun. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Look forward to talking soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sustainability in the Air. Aviation is one of the hardest to decarbonize industries, yet there are multiple paths to get to net zero. Awareness is key to a green future. So please give us your support to help our sustainable aviation insights reach a wider audience. You can do this by sharing this episode on your network on LinkedIn, Twitter, or even WhatsApp. Or perhaps you might consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this episode. You can start a conversation with us by writing to us at podcast at simplifying, that's simply with an I, dot com. And for more content on sustainable aviation, please visit our website green.simplifying.com and join the movement. Sustainability in the Air is an original podcast by Simplifying. The show is produced by Uri Toth in Slovakia. Dirk Singer is our Director of Sustainability, who leads research for each interviewee out of Greenwich, UK. Shubhadeep Pau is our Supervising Editor based out of Mumbai and Singapore. The articles are written by Ayushi Badola in Dehradun in India and Mira Hull in Montreal, Quebec. Creative design is led by Lihia Esteve in Montreal. Baiba Dreamen is the project director for the show based out of Valencia, Spain. Special thanks to Wendy Sim in Singapore. And I'm Shashank Nigam, the CEO of Simplifying and your host. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn.